Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Clement, brought to you by our new partners, Qatar Racing. We are thrilled to be partnered with Qatar Racing. Qatar Racing is a subsidiary of Keepco, the largest sponsor in British flat racing. As a global racing and breeding operation, Qatar Racing chairman Sheikh Fahad bin Abdullah Al Thani has created an expansive international sponsorship portfolio to include the Breeders' Cup and events like the Pegasus World. Cup turf. Qatar Racing has over 100 horses in training, many mares and foals and yearlings, and four top class stallions Cameco, Zustar, Havana Gold, and Lightning Spear. Don't miss out on the great Qatar Racing action and learn more at www.inthemoneypodcast.com slash Qatar. Big thanks to our new partners and thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of In the Ring. Going to be talking a little bit of international racing today as well um, and some new stallions. So hope you enjoy today's show. Um, as I look back on the recordings of um, the interviews that I did for today's episode, I think my cat Pippin makes a couple cameos. So, so apologies if you hear a few meows in the background. If you're a loyal listener to the show, you've probably heard it before. Pippin loves to become a little bit more active as soon as I start recording and start interviewing somebody. So um, apologies if you uh, you hear a little cat in the background, but he's all part of it. Um, so hope you enjoy today's episode. Thanks as always for listening and we'll get right to it and welcome in our first guest. Really happy to welcome in my first guest, Mr. Everett Dobson of Cheyenne Stables. And Everett, so happy to have you on the show. Um, you're somebody that I, I always love getting a chance to pick your brain and talk about the game a little bit. And it's been quite a fun year for you as well. Well, yeah, the, the past year has been pretty remarkable on the racing side and, and the breeding side as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we had obviously had a lot of fun with Olympiad last year. Um, it was it was an incredible run. It was it was a it was a great year to have Olympiad. It was a bad year to run into flight lines. Like that's, <laughs> be that as it may, he was a remarkable horse. And we had, I had him with some partners and we just had an incredible uh, fun year. No, no question. Olympiad, he went on that tear really at the start of the year last year, winning race after race after race and um, ended, ended it with the second behind flight line in the Breeders' Cup. Can you talk a little bit about how this horse um, came to be with the partnership that owned him, what was kind of the beginning of finding him and, and starting him off with Bill Mott? Sure. Well, we, I formed a, um, or, uh, I joined a group of a buying group that consisted of the LNJ people, Larry, Nancy Roth and, and, uh, and that group. And, um, with Robert Clay, Grandview Equine, uh, Jamie Roth was obviously a big part of it as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we, we targeted, uh, you know, what we thought would be the high-end horses at the yearling sale, put a fair amount of money together to buy them. And this this came through that program. Uh, we particularly liked the horse physically as a yearling, but we also liked the breeding, um, the fact that Emory Hamilton was the breeder and she raises the really, really nice horses. And so that's that was the initial start. And, um, you know, the program was really about sending, you know, the the uh, horses that we bought around to various trainers and Bill Mott being one that we particularly liked. And, uh, and he did a, just an incredible job with him over, over the, you know, he had some setbacks that were relatively minor, but they, mm -hmm. they needed some time and we got the horse back and he came back in great shape and just kept getting better. And I think his last race was probably one of his better ones. Uh, 
So, um, you know, he, and he's off to, to uh, Gainesway and starting his stagging career actually this week, and, mm-hmm. and we're hearing good things. How exciting is that to have a horse that you campaigned and, and had a lot of fun with and getting a chance to see him head into the stallion barn? I know not something that you're new uh, to, to experiencing, but it has to always be really exciting to have the chance to follow their progeny on the racetrack. Well, yeah, it's it's the culmination of, you know, a, a strategy and, and a vision that you have for a program. In this mm-hmm. case, we we our program was to identify, you know, well-bred yearlings that and um you know, obviously they have to pass through a lot of, a lot of hoops. I was using Gatewood Bell at the time um, to do my advising and, and LNJ and Robert were using Alex Lease and Jason Lett and that team. So we had a collaborative effort. We didn't always agree, but we came together on more times than we didn't. And, and ultimately to see that, uh, you know, that program have success, if you will, is, uh, was, was, um, you know, very fulfilling and rewarding and, and it turned out okay financially. So that doesn't hurt either. <laughs> For somebody like you who's involved in both the racing side of things along with the breeding part, uh, that has to be extra rewarding to see your horse go off to be a stallion. And I'm sure always along the lines, and we've just seen that's how the game is now, that financially too, that's where you really see a lot of the success come when they have the opportunity to get one of those stallion deals. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I thoroughly enjoy the racing, but I probably enjoy the breeding side more than I do the racing side. And so my breeding program had had a pretty good year too. And, and uh, you know, it's a similar process. I have a program, I try to buy uh, target, well-bred, uh, attractive, well-conformed yearlings and race them and then turn them into broodmares. And one of them that came through that program is the dam of, of uh, Hoosier Philly, mm-hmm. uh, who was actually running on Saturday in the Rachel Alexander and one of the favorites for the Kentucky Oaks, and I understand she's nominated for the Kentucky Derby. So to have one that is that her dam is Capella, who um, I bought as a yearling, and to have and I raced her, and to have her, you know, come through that program is uh, is, is for me, it's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. You mentioned going through the beginning and looking at horses as, as yearlings. And that's where we really kind of have the blank, the blank slate, as opposed to buying horses at a two-year-old sale, for instance, can you talk a little bit about the preference of going to those yearling sales and looking at those pedigrees and the, those individuals physically? Yeah, I, I it's, you know, it's, everybody has their own um, way of doing things. And, and there's a lot of people that target the two-year-old sales. You get, you get to the races a lot faster with mm-hmm. the two-year-old sales, but at the yearlings, you know, you, you have more to choose from, uh, typically, uh, pretty much, you know, a large 75, 80% of all, all horses that are, are, you know, in the category that I would look at, go through the, the yearling sales throughout the year. Um, typically you can buy the really good looking yearlings at a price price point that's, that's a little bit less than the top, top tier two-year-olds, but, um, and, and I get to break them and train them the way I want. And, um, if they're if they need to mature a little bit, I take my time. If I need to go, if they're precocious and I feel like they can go early, then I then I accelerate it a little bit. At the two year old sales, you really don't have any options. You have to get them ready and get them going. Um, but I I just you know for me I like I like the sales process. Mm-hmm. I like looking at horses. I like I like examining the um, you know the horses at the at the yearling sale and you know studying confirmation. And then I go back and, and analyze my, my results, the ones I focused on and the ones I targeted. I, I critically assess uh, how I did. And then 
and then I look at uh, the horses that I passed on and try to examine what what maybe I missed or mm-hmm. what was what what I didn't like that maybe I should have overlooked in some cases. But it's a it's for me. It's just a I enjoy the sales process and it's part of my program to to you know identify the the fillies and then race them and and hopefully the, then the good ones I turn into brood mares and if they're they don't meet the they don't pass the um, you know the the, the racing test and then, then typically I move on and move moving through the sale process. And of course, you you have the Candy Meadows side of things, which is your breeding um, arm of the operation, and you have the farm in Kentucky. I was looking at your your website before this interview, saw already a few foals of twenty twenty three, which is exciting, and a good looking group of yearlings too. Um, tell us a little bit about what's on the farm and some things uh, you're looking forward to. Yeah, well, it's it's foaling season. Uh, we <laughs> I think we've had four. We had one a couple of nights ago. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, we've got a lot to look forward to. Um, we've had, we've already had, uh, some of our better broodmare genre, um, had a very nice quality road cold a couple of nights ago or a week or so ago, I guess. And, um, so we had a night with cold, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's that time Our I think if I, I'm probably going to jinx it, but I think our, our yearling crop is this. Is as strong as uh, as we've ever had, and uh, Hoosiers Philly has a has a half brother, a justify half brother out of Capella that is really a, really is a strong looking colt at this stage of the game. Obviously, he's got a few months to mature before he can. He'll be sold in the September sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Eulalie, uh, uh, who is a half sister to Capella, uh, has a has a very nice end of mischief. So uh, I'm not sure I'm gonna. It's a it's a Philly, so I'll probably erase her she probably won't she probably won't end up in the mm-hmm. sale but you know it's all about ele- elevating the the quality um you know i try to keep my numbers in the 25 to 30 broodmare range that's that fits my farm and my staff and and that's the number for me so you know if i can continue to elevate the quality and and um see these lines develop then that's uh, that's very rewarding for me what's the process like in choosing the matings and making the plans for the, the broodmares that you do have well, yeah, it's, um, it's, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I'll start with the, if I didn't enjoy it, it, pro- it would probably be uh, painful because it is, it's, <laughs> it's very laborious. I mean, it takes time to do it right. You need to go in and understand pedigrees and understand families. And, um, you know, obviously, you, you know, you need to, you need to line up the confirmational uh, elements of matching the, the stallion to the, to the dam, to your broodmare. Uh, so it's it helps to know what the stallion's uh, faults are and and strengths are and size and and um, you know and then at the end of the day you're you're throwing mother nature at it and 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 therein lies a lot of luck and so no one can perfect the breeding side of it um, you're you're playing hunches and 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 nicks and and um, and just doing your work but I you know it's it's something I enjoy and, and I have my, my uh, farm manager, Matt, Matt Lyons is very good in that discipline as well. And so we, we have a good time going through the pedigrees and, and talking through the, the, the stallion prospects and ultimately coming up with the, with our selection. So it's, uh, it's enjoyable. Would there be something that you've said, wow, I've really learned so much through that mistake or through that success in the breeding side of things? Are there certain lessons that stand out? Because it is always a learning curve. It's never really an industry where you feel like, okay, I've made it. I know everything that I'm supposed to do here. Well, yeah, I think, I think you, for, 
you know, it's it, you have to understand your program. And, mm-hmm. and my program is mostly commercial, but I'm also trying to develop families. And, and I guess if there's one critical lesson that uh, that everybody that I probably learned and, and have adopted, I guess you would say, is that I really try to it, I try to to emphasize proven sires mm-hmm. for the mayors that I really want to develop their, um, you know, their families. Um, and that's a hard lesson because, you know, I want to, I'm going to support Olympiad this year. So do I bring some of my better mares to Olympiad? In this case, probably I will, but it's not a, it's, it's not a tactic. And that's, that shows my conviction for the horse of the stallion more than anything, but you have to be really careful if you're trying to develop families to, to bring them quality or proven sires. And, um, that just, that will pay dividends over the long run when you're moving if you're trying to develop families now if you're trying to if you're trying to um, you know take advantage of the of the commercial market yeah first year sires are are, are a great way to invest uh, and so the, in my case it's more of a mix i'll try to i'll try to utilize some good mares for olympiad um, but if it's i've got a lot of most most of what i go to are the proven sires and if there's one thing i that i think is a lesson learned that uh, that's 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 better for my program, I guess. Mm-hmm. When did you kind of uh, expand into the the breeding side of things, or was that always a goal that you wanted to have? I know you've been involved in racing for quite some time, but I don't know if I actually ever heard your story of how it all began for you. Yeah, I, um, well, the, it, it, it began by buying a horse, a racehorse <laughs> in this case, back in 1995, but I had some I had some close friends that were that were involved in the sport and so that that kind of allowed me to gravitate into what they were doing and, and it continued you know friendship the friendship in that manner but yeah after a while I you know made some trips to Kentucky and, and became friends with um, Bill Farish over at Lane's Inn and boarded a few mares with him and and just wanted to test the waters a little bit early in this in that process and and my wife particularly enjoys the breeding side of it. So mm-hmm. between her enjoyment and um, enjoying Kentucky, enjoying the lifestyle, the farm life, we both grew up in rural, rural America. So I think it, it touched a lot of elements uh, for me anyway. And, and uh, it, it, you know, it just evolved over time. When you buy, when you buy a few broodmares, then you start looking at farms. And when you buy a farm, you have to buy more broodmares. And so mm-hmm. Uh, it just evolved and uh, it, it's become part of our lifestyle. And, uh, and honestly, we, we thoroughly enjoy it. And you're involved in the game in many other aspects too, with the, with the jockey club, the graded stakes commit, uh, committee. Can you tell me a little bit about that involvement and, and why that is such a, an important thing for you to continue to be part of the sport in that way? Well, yeah, I get the, there's a really important part of my life where I, I, you know, I target areas that I'm, that I feel like I can make a contribution, give back to the sport. Mm-hmm. In this case, those, those activities identified as, as well as the, you know, a trustee of the Keeneland Association, those, those activities allow me to, to essentially make a contribution in areas where I, where I feel like I have some, something to offer. I mean, it, it pairs up my experience in the business world and, um, you know, my long history and, you know, in doing business in a variety of manners and a variety of businesses, it allows me to take advantage of the, of the, the skills that I have and, and make a contribution back. And so uh, I probably have said yes more than I should have over the years <laughs> when, when asked, but 
but at the same time, it's uh, I feel like I, I can I have the time to to dedicate and, and allow me to to uh, again take advantage of things uh, you know the skill sets that I do have. And for a sport and an industry that we all love and appreciate so much, it's I always um, find so much respect for those that find an outlet to continue and, and look after its preservation, so to speak, for the future. Yeah, yeah, no, it's the, the of course we've been through a period where there's been some really um, mm -hmm. difficult difficult topics to address in our sport in the last four or five years. Um, you know, I think we're coming through that and I think we're going to have a bright, bright future. Um, you know, once HISA is implemented, I think we're going to have a bright future and uh, a lot to look forward to. Um, and, and I, and I hope that we're, we'll get through this and we'll have more what I call stability in the sport mm -hmm. so that, uh, new entrants uh, feel more confident, uh, existing participants in the sport feel more confident and, um, and we have, you know, less confrontations if I, if I can say that amongst the leadership in the sport mm -hmm. and um, and we can start growing uh, growing the sport I think that is uh, that's an important element of of whether it's uh, horse racing or the NBA or, or or other sports in general I think being able to to you know present a product that has more public appeal mm -hmm. um, I think is is the ultimate goal and I think in the next four or five years we're going to start to see the public gravitate more into our sport. That's at least my expectation. You also have involvement, as you mentioned, with the NBA, with, with the Oklahoma Thunder, and, and having the uh, the opportunity to kind of see a different sports industry and one that really does have, I think, a very strong foothold in kind of American popular culture. Are there some things that you take from that bringing over to horse racing? The answer is definitely yes. <laughs> in fact, I'm, I'm, I would I would suggest that some of the people that I serve on boards with are they probably get tired of me referencing the NBA and and and, and suggest this is how the NBA does it. Not that it's the there's there's there is certainly some parallels between the sport of horse racing and the sport of NBA, but they're 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 two dynamically different sports without without a doubt. But there's still a lot of a lot of lessons learned. Um, when you have an uh, you know an industry like the NBA that has you know a lot of history and a lot of success um, and a lot of strength at the leadership uh, within a within a centralized leadership that mm -hmm. frankly everybody in horse racing I think would agree that we would love to have more more uh, more leadership in a centralized way um, but but rega regardless there are, there are lessons learned there are always um, you know I'm always citing how we market to our fans and how we present our product and how it compares to the sport of horse racing. So yeah, it, it, uh, it, yeah, I think it serves me well in some of those discussions. And as I mentioned, you're a, a member of the American Graded Stakes Committee. So no one is more familiar with you and the team as to the quality of what it takes to be a graded stakes winner and previous winners and things like that. And having a horse that wins a grade one at Saratoga with the history, like the jockey club gold cup, it feels like it's kind of like a full circle moment for you in, in that, that victory that we saw towards the end of the meet with Olympiad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it, it, I do, I do spend a lot of time on the greatest stakes. Committee. It's, a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, it's a big part of, uh, you know, my, my uh, my commitment right now. I have one one more year left as 
on the committee. I think my, my term expires at the end of this next grading session, which will be next December. But it's been, you know, and I've been on the committee for eight years, so it'll be a nine-year stint. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting when you're actually running in some of those races that you, you objectively look at. Um, fortunately for the process, the, you know, the when the horse is running, uh, there's nothing I can do to alter that grade. <laughs> or, or, you know, it's it's uh, the, the the sessions. You know, we 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 uh, determine the grade going into the, the you know the the year in December of the prior year. So, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we look at, you know, we grade 400 and roughly 450, uh, races every year. And we look at over a thousand to, to determine what, what, uh, what races are assigned, what grades. And, and we even look at the, you know, the unlisted and listed races to, uh, assign their, their relative, uh, rankings as well. So it's, it's involved. It takes time. It takes work. Uh, to do the process right, but I, I feel very good about how we uh, address the prior approach the process, and and I think we, um, we there's with there without a doubt there is no way we're going to please everybody. And in mm. fact, we please very few people most of the time. So, <laughs> but it's an important it's an important committee. Those that are on the committee, they they work hard and they dedicate their you know a lot of hours throughout. It's not just a one week grading session. Uh, it, we 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 meet regularly throughout the year to discuss the process and discuss where we're seeing quality and where we're, where we need to think about, think more thoroughly about uh, the, the process. And, uh, and so it's, um, it's a commitment, but again, it's, I, I feel, I feel like I've, I've paid my dues in, in that regard. So uh, over the long history of being on that committee. Does it give you an even stronger appreciation of those races that are grade ones and historic grade one races as well? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know that um, I would think of it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I will say uh, when I, having been on the committee, I understand the history of those races. Mm-hmm. So I guess in that regard, because we've, we've looked at that race for so many years and, 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 and look back at that race for, you know, in our case, we look back at a race for five years to understand it, but we also understand the history of that race. So, and, and you're right, there's certain grade ones that have more meaning Mm-hmm. meaning than other great ones and and certainly the jockey club gold cup is one of those races those premier races that mm-hmm. that uh, are on the calendar but any you know i'll be honest with you Keisha, if you told me i can win one grade one a year for the rest of my career i would be thrilled and i wouldn't care <laughs> what grade one it was so fair enough grade one is a great one <laughs> absolutely um well Everett, we, we can't wait to see what uh your grade one winner olympiad does as a stallion really exciting to follow him and uh, can't thank you enough for taking the time and getting a chance to pick your brain a little bit today yeah uh, it's been it's been enjoyable i'll see you on the backside hopefully sooner rather than later Happy to welcome in Michael Adelson, who was just named the new Middle East representative for Phasic Tipton. And uh, Michael, so happy to have you join the show today. And there's a lot coming up with the big races in the Middle East soon, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, thank you so much. Always, always glad to be here. Big fan of the podcast. As I, you know, I love, I love the the basically the, the bloodstock and the auction industry in general. I just think mm-hmm. it's, it's where my like inner passion is in racing, where it all started. Um, before I got into real uh, the racing aspect, so I love that. I, and as you said, it is it's a huge time of year for us here. Like it's a little slower on your side as you ramp up to the Derby, but we're mm-hmm. ramping up to two you know uh, what is it two massive days with Saudi Cup and World Cup coming up. 
And as I talked about at the beginning, um, just named the Middle East representative for Fasig Tipton. Um, congratulations, by the way. Can you tell us a little bit about what the role entails and what are some of the things that you'll be working on throughout this year? Um, so basically, the the role was sort of initiated. Uh, we'll go back to the beginning here. Back in over the winter, in the beginning of the winter, we I was in discussions with Fasig about their. They came to me asking if I'd be interested in in sort of delving through the market here and kind of deciding how the, the best way for them to sort of increase their footprint in the in the area and it's it's sort of not a it's not a you know everyone knows that dubai interests uh purchased mm -hmm. phasing oh, more than a decade ago but despite that they haven't really had a lot of influence in the region so econo was a perfect fit as someone who understands this market really well who has a lot of connections in europe and also naturally spent 30 plus years in the States and, you know, 20 of that in racing. So, it, so I understand sort of all, all aspects of it and I'm here to connect buyers and sort of expose the brand mm -hmm. um, because there are a lot of horses. There's a lot of dirt racing here. There's, you know, it just, it just makes too much sense not to dive right into it. And with races like the Saudi Cup, which is relatively new, and the Dubai World Cup, which has continued to grow, and you see a lot of entities from all over the world pointing to these particular races, do you feel like that has been a big factor in wanting to expand a sales presence and a sales association with the racing that's going on in the Middle East? Of course. And, and there's a lot of argument that says, hey, the world's getting smaller. You can do anything from anywhere. But mm -hmm. there's nothing like having boots on the ground and having face-to-face -face conversations with people as opposed to connecting all the time oh you know on phone or, or via zoom etc you know so it's it's good to have someone there who's going to explain your brand who's going to be there to simply even hand out a, a you know a pamphlet or, or a sales catalog and explain mm -hmm. the opportunities i mean things happen quickly especially in this industry and in, in the in the auction industry in general in the sales industry so you and people will make decisions on the turn of a turn of a hat to 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 go to a sale to 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 apply for credit to get themselves involved so it's i'm here to sort of be a catalyst for that and also be a liaison where i can make things easier for everyone mm -hmm. With your background with racing in the United States and then, of course, um, now being based in Dubai and on the Middle East side of um, of racing, do you feel like you've kind of changed your perspective of getting a firsthand view of horses that may suit racing in the Middle East a little mm -hmm. bit more from a physical standpoint or a pedigree standpoint or or from uh, whatever country they come from? I, I, I think... I'm anytime you're kind of immersed, you know, it's like learning a language, you know, you yeah. immerse yourself in it, you're going to know it, know it a whole lot better. Um, and I've immersed myself here for five years, uh, more than five years now. And it's, there is an understanding of what kind of horse does well here. Um, and I think there's more to, there's more to expand upon on that. I mean, I think there are lots of, for example, pedigrees and, and body types that don't get nearly enough opportunities here. Mm -hmm. um, until of course World Cup night when some Americans come over and uh, clean up some races. So <laughs> then you then they see it. But and on the in the opposite side of things, connecting for example European type horses um, and owners with who have presence here with the states. You know, having giving them an opportunity to go by over there and race over there if they want. I mean, there are types of horses that, as you see, I mean, you see the bigger outfits in America have already unlocked the key to the winning big turf races over there. It's getting mm -hmm. the right horses. Um, I mean, Chad Brown has the market on it.
uh, on, on, on how to get the right horses from, from Europe. So yeah, it's, it's basically, Dubai is such a hub, um, not only because we have the biggest airline in the world that connects everyone with direct flights, but also because we can get anywhere with a direct flight and connect anyone and mm. sort of everybody seems to want to come here at some point and see what it's all about. So it's it's a nice opportunity to be, like I said, the best liaison I can for these people. And and Phasig is a phenomenal company that with a great reputation and the team has been nothing but absolutely aces with me. Um, you know, Boyd and Anna and Bain and everyone involved, they are just absolutely great people. Such a fun team and I'm really, really excited to see uh, how your role continues to expand and, and how that will develop. And as you mentioned, more than five years in Dubai for you as a broadcaster, producer, publicity, you kind of do it all. Um, where, mm-hmm. where did the passion for racing in the Middle East begin and how did you kind of fine tune those skills and now being based there full time? I mean, I've been going to the races. Um, I just turned 40 and I've been going to the races um, since I was three or four years old in the States. And, but it wasn't until probably, it kind of sprung out of in the late, probably the early nineties when I was such a little kid and I started the Breeders' Cup and seeing all these European horses and started understanding that there was, there were these amazing horses like Miesk and Frampolino um, uh, in late eighties and early nineties, you had horses come over that were just absolutely phenomenal. I was obsessed with learning more about that. And that spread into in the late, in the mid to late nineties, when the the Dubai World Cup came along, obviously Cigar came along, but the horse that really hooked me into really diving into Middle East was probably, well, probably two of them. It was when Swain and, and Mm. um, Swain and Silver Charm hooked up in the 98 World Cup. And just to see two world, absolute world champions, two horses who hated to lose, um, on the other side of the world and a racetrack didn't look, didn't look too dissimilar from, from what I was used to back home. That was fascinating to me that it was just mm-hmm. racing translates, you know, and, and good horses, good horses are good horses. So it's nice to see, you know, it, it was nice to see at that point or understand sort of the, um, the relative sort of like comfort and, 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 and great racing. And I, I really dove into it head first. And ever since then, I've always, I'd always wanted to work here. And when the opportunity came out with Frank Gabriel, who was here at the time, he recruited me over there. Um, and he remains one of my, um, now he's with Naira. Uh, mm-hmm. He remains one of my idols, just as he's such a hardworking man. And he taught me a lot about how, especially in racing, world racing, and in a hub like this, you have to remain hardworking and absolutely understanding that everybody comes from a different culture. And I'm, I'm sure it was still an adjustment for you too in, in- moving your tax, so to speak, uh, to yeah. Dubai. Uh, but still, as you mentioned, there is kind of that common language, that common ground. I've only been to Dubai once for the World Cup a few years ago, but it, it was amazing to see and, and the passion, you know, that's the same anywhere you go with racing. Of course. And it's just that, especially when you see it at the very top level and at the absolute peak of, of international competition and all respect to the major the major world events from the HKIR to the Breeders' Cup to um, Saudi Cup, etc. But the most international meeting in the world is the world is the Dubai World Cup. Just the amount of nations that show up, the um, diversity, the uh, it's just the sheer competition, the differentiation of races from 
a variety of races rather from a straight six furlong sprint down to that where most of the horses crawl toward the rail so you're just so close to the action mm -hmm. um on the outside turf course to a traditional two-turn mile and a quarter race that we see in the states so it's 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 just a lot of fun. I mean, you'll see the best horses from Japan, uh, the best horses from the Middle East, which are getting better, and obviously from Europe. Um, and Godolphin is always strong, mm -hmm. so it's nice to have that home team that's in incredibly, you know, um, well respected here. And we've seen, and there's always been an American presence, I would say, but it, it feels like in the last few years, it's become more and more commonplace uh, for American entities to kind of circle a race like the Dubai World Cup or races on the yeah. undercard and even the Saudi Cup now as well. And to, to point backwards and going to those big races, it feels like it's become a lot more prevalent. Yes, of course. And, and people, I think people thought that maybe it wouldn't be once the Saudi Cup came about mm -hmm. and being within a month. Uh, this year, it's four weeks. Sometimes it's five. Uh, and in the fourth year of it, to me, it's only strengthened the World Cup. Mm -hmm. The World Cup has the prestige, and, and and not to put put a box around, put it into too much of a box. But it's when you have a, the amount of money that a lot of these people do that are running in these races, mm -hmm. it's less twelve million to twenty million is not the is not that big of a difference for a lot of these people. <laughs> they they want to win the big race, you know. They want the big race, um, and the, the World Cup has become and maintains itself as the big race and on top of that you have the undercard which has been developed so well mm -hmm. um not to not to act like a salesman for the world cup but i don't work <laughs> for them anymore you know what i mean but like the yeah. undercard is just phenomenal the shima itself this year is going to be probably uh the race of the year to me i mean the the, the level of horses that are coming uh it's going to be out of this world you mentioned at the beginning a love and passion for for pedigrees and the sales side of things, mm -hmm. and especially now with with your involvement with Phasing, it seems like a perfect fit. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? And and I'm sure even from a handicapping perspective, I know personally yeah. that that a passion for the breeding side and pedigrees really can be very helpful and interesting when it comes to that too. Yeah, I mean anybody who's been on the air with me in the states or or over here can tell you that that's my first angle, mm -hmm. um, and to me, it's just, it, it became, for example, um, when I was a, uh, when I was just a kid, I would save up money for a blood horse magazine. Um, and I would go through, uh, I would, I would go through, uh, the, the back of it for the sales results and I would cover up the sales prices and I would circle all the ones that I liked and I'd go back and then I'd follow them along throughout the next two years and see how they did. I mean, I remember one time I picked out one that happened to be this little phone trick, uh, cult that wound up being caller one it was a two-time oh. Shaheen one um and you know it was just something that I just started picking up on I'm not a very good I'm one of those kids that had a I had a bit of a um a reading disability growing up where I was and, and attention span where I couldn't read long novels but I was able to read magazines and short snippets really well so I'm able to soak that in extremely well and that's sort of like the photographic memory as well attached to Mm -hmm. um the horses so that's that's kind of where that all came from it was what I dove into uh at first and I I just love the idea of you know not not just breeding the best of the best note for the best but breeding the right kind to the right kind and figuring out what kind of horse mm -hmm. is going to come out of that would we see you dabble in the the breeding side of things or picking out horses at sales I hope so um but I mean I, I never put the uh cart before the horse per se but I, <laughs> I 
I love those things. I, they are, I mean, it's my passion. Mm-hmm. It's just whether or not it's going to be something that fits for me, you know, in, and when it comes to work, because uh, I'm keeping fairly busy as it were. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I have this, obviously I have this, this lovely gig with, um, with basic, which is a nice chance to dive into a passion of mine, mm-hmm. but I also have, you know, a contract with Dubai racing channel broadcasting with them and producing for them. And uh, on top of that, I represent the, the second leading jockey in the UAE in, in um, Antonio Fresu. So it's, I'm very lucky to be involved in many ways in the industry. And it's kind of, it keeps me without a day off for a while, but it, gets, it also, it keeps me enthralled. It keeps that, that three, four-year-old kid that just, you know, was chasing jockeys, asking for goggles at Pimlico Racecourse in Laurel. As a, um, it, it keeps that kid alive and breathing. I love that so much. And uh, yes, you are busy. It's always amazing to me. Every time I go on social media, it seems like you've picked up another job that you're doing, uh, which I have so much respect for. And you mentioned Antonio. We got a chance to see him ride um, for a day at Saratoga, which was fun. I, I had the opportunity to interview him. Um, talk a little bit about that relationship and diving into the world of being an agent as well. I It wasn't something I was keen on in the beginning. Uh, Antonio approached me three carnivals ago um and he said would you be interested in doing this i think you would be good at it and antonio's very and i was like antonio you're pretty you're, you're pretty hands-on as it were mm-hmm. you don't need me he's like i think that we would be a good match and and we have been and he went from i think fourth in the standings to almost won the championship last year uh we won a dubai golden shaheen uh, we're doing very well this season we have uh, almost 40 wins and we're second in the standings so and we've got a big chance to Big chance at winning a group one tomorrow in Abu Dhabi, uh, hopefully. So, you know, it's, we're, and we're, we're right now, um, if any Americans are coming over, need a good rider, you let me know. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's right, no, nice pitch. But uh, no, I, it's, he's, he's just such a, a quality human being and he's, he's what I call a delightfully boring uh, rider where he doesn't have any vices that get in the way of his ability. Um, you know, he's, he's a homebody and, um, just got married so he's a good kid and he wrote over there he loved it he said yeah um, well we hope to see him back soon we think that might happen yeah we i mean i'm trying to convince him to try california in april because mm-hmm. a lot of the connections he's made here from the states are in california he rides um a lot of doug o'neill's horses in the morning uh and then he's riding a filly for him in the oaks that has a big chance named amy please um on friday um and he also, during World Cup week, I mean, last last year during the carnival, he was Hot Rod Charlie's exercise morning for the breezes. Mm-hmm. And he was also, you know, he breezed Bob Baffert's horses when they were here. So, I mean, he has those connections and I hope he can expand upon it because it seems that the West Coast is a little bit more um, open to the European style of racing. I think that has a whole lot sure. to do with the turf racing as well. Well, coming up in um, not too far from now, just 10 days time, uh, it'll be the, the Saudi Cup. And I know that you do um, some work with, with uh, publicity with them as well. Um, I, I was up pacing this morning and Bill Mott said his horses have shipped over to Saudi getting ready. And, um, and it's an exciting time. Can you tell some things that you're looking forward to with Saudi Cup? Maybe some horses you're looking forward to seeing in particular. I mean, it's going to be. There are some great fields, as always. I mean, twenty million dollars does a does a good job. Pretty <laughs> horses over. Um, to me, the I mean, there are great Americans like I think Elite Power. If yep. if he's indeed on his way, like that'll be intriguing because on paper he should win for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least him and Goodnight should have a good battle. 
but at the same time, you never know what's going to happen here. It's a nice long stretch, and and um, that's either going to work to his advantage or disadvantage. You never know how how if he's if he's going to you know get a little bit late on the in, in the final few yards. I do think that the Japanese are probably the most exciting aspect. They're coming after the World Cup with uh, a lot of um, we'll just say um, enthusiasm. They're they're not, they're not afraid of it. Um, the Saudi they're, they're coming after both meetings really well. I think they have about twenty horses going there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see Songline again. I know she won last year, and she was my pick to be the horse to upset Modern Games in the, in the Breeders' Cup mm -hmm. Mile before she got hurt. And I think that if she comes back to herself, Christophe Lemaire, I spoke to him, and he says she's doing very well. Uh, she'll be fun in the 1351 Terrace Sprint. I think she gets a rematch with Cassock Reed in there. Um, and they were noses apart. Uh, yeah. that'll, be, that'll be really fun to see. I mean, to me, the whole day is just just a blast. Country Grammar coming back is always good. He and Frankie seem to be a match made in heaven. Just the way he rode him the other day was in this. Um, San Antonio was amazing. Um, and of course, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm the biggest Taba fan. I, I think it becomes, it just, I, if he comes over, and he should be, obviously, and runs his race, I think mm -hmm. it's over. I think he, I think that if he runs his race there, um, he'll be very tough to beat. And he comes here, he'll be very tough to beat. I don't know if he'll come here if he wins the big race in Saudi. Sure. Um, but if he does, I mean, I'm just such a big fan. He's, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a small boxy ginger. And I very much relate <laughs> to all of those things, you know, like. <laughs> I love that. Um, a storyline that I find fascinating that you touched on is, um, is the, the global success and true enthusiasm of the Japanese. Um, we saw that um, with, uh, with Dubai and Saudi last year, the Breeders' Cup as well, and, and seeing mm -hmm. just the quality of horses, the quality of the, the breeding and how it's elevated in Japan as well. Um, from your vantage point on the other side of the world, from where I am, um, can you talk a little bit about ob observing that? I think they're just they're precisionists when it comes to the way they build their programs. You can see it when you look at their massive but extremely efficient training centers there. Um, to me, it's I think they've built a program over the over decades of I mean, they realized very early that it's all about the broodmares. Uh, I mean, they just build these massive, high quality broodmare bands. And then they really support those stallions with those broodmares. Um, I mean, I'm not sure that, for example, I'm not sure that Mind Your Biscuits would have got the same love from the breeders and the same mm -hmm. quality of mares that he got in Japan. And that's why one of the reasons, in my opinion, why he did so well in his first season. Mm -hmm. um, and he will probably continue to do well and be with early horses being a posse, just like his father did. Well, it'll be exciting to follow, that's for sure. And I uh, can't wait to watch all the action. Saudi, Dubai coming up. Um, best of luck to you, Michael. Hope you get some sleep in the next couple of months. <laughs> I, I'm sure you you probably won't get much, but um, hope you enjoy it all and looking forward to uh, to following um, your new position with Phasic Tipton as well. Thank you so much and for your time. And uh, yeah, reach out anytime. I look forward to connecting with anyone. And that'll do it for another episode of In the Ring. Thank you so much for joining me as always. Um, we're going to be doing a little bit of a new timeline moving forward for In the Ring coverage so that we can bring you the best opportunity to keep an eye on what's going on with all of the sales. So just do take note of that. We'll be focusing kind of on uh, three big chunks of the year with the two-year-old sales from March to May, kind of a summer check-in in August with the yearling sales going on 
and seeing all of those young horses debuting at Saratoga and Del Mar. And then the fall sales pretty much October uh, to November at that point when it's really, really busy sales time, uh, particularly with the horses of racing age and the yearling sales as well. So that's going to kind of be the timeline for the rest of 2023 moving forward. I'll keep you all updated on social media, of course. Be sure to follow In The Money Media with the newsletter and all of the great content from my colleagues over there. And as always, let me know if there's anything you're interested in learning a little bit more about. Thanks as always for joining me on In The Ring. I'll see you next time.